Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you're tuned into Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker and most of my time with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's about New York's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, like today, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, texture, and vibe. What makes that New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Past shows have included a history of U.S. presidents uh, who came or lived in New York. Uh, actually, we have a lot of history here of presidents. Washington is the first, New York's the second. Uh, we talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, uh, which until 1898 was its own city, and which we may touch on today as well. Uh, we've talked about the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we've also explored the history of bicycles and cycling. On future programs, we'll journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, uh, or the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. I know I keep threatening to do a program on punk. I will do one eventually or unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. Uh, and each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, as well as live right here on talkradio.nyc. Today we're journeying to a very special neighborhood, actually one of my favorites in the city, uh, and in Brooklyn, Dumbo, and its sister neighborhood, Vinegar Hill, which actually in places only measures a couple of blocks wide. Um, Although uh, Vinegar Hill used to be much larger and present-day Dumbo uh, encompasses part of what used to be Vinegar Hill, but we'll get to that in a minute. Our first guest is now a returning guest to Rediscovering New York, Kevin Draper. Kevin is sought-after New York City historian and co-founder of New York Historical Tours. An impassioned native New Yorker, Kevin actively brings to life the incredible and inspiring stories that have made New York the most exciting and influential city in the world. I think everyone in the studio would agree with that. For over 10 years, Kevin has provided top-rated first-class tours and New York experiences to locals and visitors from all over the globe. His dynamic knowledge, professionalism, and gift for storytelling have awarded him consistent five-star reviews. TripAdvisor's Certificate of Excellence year after year, and he's won accolades of the most discriminating clientele. Kevin has led historical talks and lectures for top universities and Fortune 500 companies, and is a respected historical consultant for major media and publications, including CBS, ABC, Bloomberg, The Times, that's the New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Kevin back to the show. Kevin, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Um, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. I think the microphone is still not... Uh, no, nah, it's still, it's actually the connection, I think, here. Okay, let me know. Yeah. How's that? That's better. That, that better? <coughs> okay. Yes. How's that? That's great. Okay, thank you. Kevin, welcome. Let's take two on that. Yes. Kevin, welcome okay. back to Rediscovering <laughs> New York. Yes, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, you're a native New Yorker. What part of our great metropolitan area did you grow up in? So, originally in the suburbs on Long Island, but as a kid... Um, my parents used to bring me in constantly to the city to go to museums, um, shows, and literally from the age I was like five years old, I was always fascinated by the city. So that sort of started my lifelong passion of wanting to learn more about it. And basically, one time to go to college, I went to school here in the city and I never left. So I've been a sort of a real New Yorker from college on. Uh -huh. Does anyone here remember the Dave Mason song, It's Like You Never Left, or am I dating myself? Now you do? Okay, good. <laughs> um, how did you get into the business of illuminating and entertaining New Yorkers about our neighborhoods and our amazing history? So it really was, you know, literally, again, from when I was a kid um, up until I was a teenager, when I'd be with friends and family, I'd always be pointing things out and telling people stories about the city and up into in my 20s and into my 30s. And I did study history in college and, and business also, but I had a whole different career that I was actually involved in in my 20s and 30s. And then just hearing people say to me all the time, you know, you should do something like this for a living, something with history, with New York, you know, maybe a tour company or do some consulting or something along that way. 
And I just, I don't know, I just thought it was like, how could you actually make money and make a career of something you really truly enjoy? I know it sounds funny, but I thought, you know, can I really do that? And decided to just go ahead and try it and do it. And that's, like I said, it's been over 10 years at this point that we've had the tour company and everything else I've been doing as an historian. So it's just this idea of taking a real passion of mine and, and making it a career. Well, I can relate 100%. I uh, studied history myself and uh, now do this as part uh, of my uh business bringing neighborhoods to life, but not to the same extent as, as, as professional historians like you do. Um, one question that I know a lot of our listeners have about Dumbo is how the neighborhood came to be called Dumbo, but we're going to talk about that later in the show because I think it fits better into the chronology of uh, how the neighborhood evolved and how the neighborhood developed. Uh, let's rewind, not rewind, but let's go back hundreds of years, maybe 400 before the Dutch arrived in what became New Netherland, were there native people living in or by what would become Dumbo? Yes. Um, you know, when you think about the Native American Indians that were in what we consider the five boroughs in New York area today, if you take an area like, say, Brooklyn, when you have, say, Brooklyn Heights, it's very high up. It's not very easy access to the water. You know, we had a very... Um, even if you go further Manhattan, if you go up to like Inwood, again, it's very high up, hard access to the rivers. And for people that a great deal of their uh, food supply came from the rivers, you want to be close to the river. So what is now the Dumbo area was a natural, uh, it was almost at the level of, of the river. So it was very easy for the tribes to, to fish and to do what they needed to do. So they had a settlement in that area. So it's one of a handful of places where when the Dutch did arrive in the 1620s, where the Native American Indians were actually settled in, which would be today Dumbo. Hmm. Um, Broekelen, that's actually what Brooklyn was named after, is a town in uh, the Netherlands. In fact, when I went to Midwood High School, and uh, we had a sister high school that was in Broekelen. It was uh, really, it was really cool. Um, it was largely uh, created in what's now Brooklyn Heights, settled in Brooklyn Heights. Did, did what's now Dumbo, was it actually part of that town of, of Brooklyn originally, or was it sort of just in the outskirts? And it was a little bit more on the outskirts, um, definitely. I mean, it, it started to get built up literally from the period of the Dutch because, again, being sort of on level with the river, right away from the very, very beginning, ferry services were going back and forth to Manhattan. So the city itself of New Amsterdam was sort of more like the city. I mean, we would probably consider it more of a town when you look back. But um, the farm, farming, which was over in Brook, Brooklyn, Brooklyn um, that the Dutch had settled for farm, they, all the supplies would have to go down to what is today Dumbo to be shipped over to New Amsterdam. So from the very beginning, that was sort of an active port area. Hmm. And Brooklyn, Brooklyn was the second Dutch town that was established. The first in the new in New Netherland. The first, of course, being being uh, New Amsterdam. Um, there is a little bit of Revolutionary War history, but not fighting in Dumbo. What what happened uh, at the end of the Battle of Long Island? Well, so this is actually when I talk about the American Revolution, this is actually one of the most important uh, events that happened, where. When the British invaded New York City to take New York, Washington was here at the Continental Army, and he had to make a decision whether to fight in Man Manhattan or to go over to Brooklyn. And the reason he went over to Brooklyn is because if the British had gone to Brooklyn first, they would have lined up in Brooklyn Heights, and then they could have basically launched cannonballs into New York City and basically just destroyed the city. So Washington moved most of the Continental Army over to Brooklyn to face the British there. Now, by the way, this is actually the largest battle of the entire American Revolution. It's the first official battle after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and it's the biggest battle of the whole war, which we lose, actually, within a few days. And the entire Continental Army is basically where Brooklyn Heights is today. And the rules of war was Washington was supposed to, that was it. He was trapped. It was over. He was supposed to wait. He was supposed to set up our camp. Within a few days, the British would march in. He's supposed to surrender. They're supposed to trade swords back and forth. It's supposed to be a whole big ceremony, which if that happened, we would all be Canadians, basically, because they would have been no, they would have been no United States of America. That would have been it. We would have still been part of Britain. They never would have heard of the revolution. But instead, he moves everyone down from the heights into where what we'd call Dumbo today, and he had to do an evacuation. So from a history standpoint, I think people listening to the show today like history. If you think of Dunkirk and World War II, when the British escaped 
from Europe. That was our Dunkirk, meaning that he had to get the entire army across in the middle of the night without the British knowing. If they would have figured this out at any point during the night, it would have been over. So we got a few volunteers to stay in our camp. All they did all night was keep campfires going. That was their job. Since when the British thought we were in the camp. Meanwhile, he was down in what would be today Dumbo, getting all every single boat they can get their hands on to move the entire Continental Army across the river, which they did. And the following morning when the British went into our camp, we were gone. And Washington learned that night that he'll never be able to fight them head on. That the idea is just keep this army moving and eventually they'll, they'll quit, they'll leave. Mm. So eight years later, that's exactly what happens. Well, it's 3,500 3, miles away and uh, not easy to, to ship goods and, and men, right. mostly over uh, a two-month voyage. Mm-hmm. So you certainly couldn't plan strategically. Um, there's also, sadly, some uh, dark history uh, in, in this part of Brooklyn, too. Uh, the British uh, imprisoned thousands and thousands of Continental soldiers in prison ships in what uh, became the Navy Yard in Wallabat Bay. Uh, and uh, I believe that more soldiers, more people died on those ships than were killed in, the, in, in actual warfare during the whole revolution. That's right. So what was happening on those ships that were docked right off of Dumbo area, right, they, they put all, all our prisoners there. And to give credit, though, to the British Army and the King, and this wasn't any of their doing. They didn't do this on purpose. It was actually just the people working the ships. So to give you an example, if you have prisoners in there and you get uh, 100 blankets in the winter, you throw five in to the prisoners and you sell the rest. If you get 100 apples, you throw five apples in, sell the rest. If you get fresh, clean water, they would just sell it on the black market. So that's why people were dying, disease, starvation. So yes, more people died in there than on all the battlefields during the entire war. Well, right after the American Revolution, uh, what might have been the first large-scale development in the real estate business uh, occurred in what became Vinegar Hill. What was Olympia, or what was supposed to be Olympia? So in 1787, um, you had um, Comfort and Joshua Sands bought some land, and the idea was to make it sort of a summer retreat for people from New York, um, like a vacation spot. Now, this is 1787, so the war uh, had only been over for a couple of years, and New York City was having a hard enough time getting itself back on its feet. So the idea of having a vacation spot wasn't really in the cards, so it didn't really go as well as they thought. And Brooklyn Heights is actually is what started to develop into what would be considered one of the first suburbs. So it was a good idea, but it didn't actually really go as far as they thought it would. Which is probably why we don't have any Olympia. No one remembers the <laughs> yeah, name. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Although there is a Sand Street, which uh, the Sands uh, brothers were uh, actually was is, is still named after them. Um, and we talked about the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which most people have heard of in this country, but its roots go back hundreds of years, don't they? Oh, yeah. You can go back to the American Revolution. I mean, we were building ships back at that point, um, even before that. Um, when you think about even when the Dutch were here, that area along the waterfront, everything you needed to do, making sails, making ropes, you know, bringing logs in to, to create the wooden beams to make the ships, um, you know, was everything was done on the waterfront. So really from almost from the very beginning of the Dutch settlement, but more more so when the British were here, yeah, that's then that area was being developed all the way through the end of World War II. Um, the Brooklyn Navy Yards is one of the biggest um, sh- shipping yards in, in the whole country. Hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with historian Kevin Draper about the history of Dumbo and also specifically Vinegar Hill. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who 
do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. (laughs) (laughs) Woo-hoo! Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back and you're back to rediscovering new york with jeff goodman uh today we are journeying across the east river to dumbo and its sister neighborhood vinegar hill i call it a sister neighborhood because they're both neighborhoods are both pretty small and vinegar hill is really small so i just think of them as like two neighborhoodlets who are part of the same neighborhood um kevin why don't you tell our listeners about your business and how they can contact you so we are new uh, you can find us at new york historicaltours.com. That is our website and has all information on there about all the different tours that we offer. Um, They're offered seven days a week, 365 days a year. And then you can also get in contact with me, Kevin Draper, for um, private events, lectures, speaking engagements, radio shows, anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so that's the best way to find us, newyorkhistoricaltours.com, and I'll have all the information on there. And you have public tours as well? Yes, we do. We do public tours, private tours, um, everything in between, corporate events, schools, everything. Let's go back um, a little bit after the revolution uh, to Vinegar Hill. How did the neighborhood get its name? So Vinegar Hill actually is named after a battle of uh, Vinegar Hill during the Irish Rebellion of 1798. And the thing was, this area of Brooklyn, there was a heavy, heavy uh, Irish population. I mean, most people think at this time that it was just like the five points of Manhattan, but no, there was quite a few people over in Brooklyn. And it actually had the nickname of Irish Town for a while. So people thought of it as, as that. And then Vinegar Hill, again, being named after that battle, it just kind of stuck from there. It's probably maybe one of the first times that uh, a developer took uh, uh, a name and trying to uh, uh, get people from a particular country or area thinking, oh, I want to live there. Because, of course, Irish uh, Vinegar Hill was, uh, um, uh, was a very heroic battle, and a lot of people from Ireland uh, uh, had still talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Brooklyn was a city in its own right until the consolidation in 1898 uh, with its own economy and business community. Um, how did the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825 impact businesses in Dumbo, or what would become Dumbo? That really made New York and Brooklyn at the time a true world-class city. Um, I mean, look, I, I don't like to say this, but New York was just really a big town for a long time. I mean, we never even call it a city on, on, on the level of like Paris or London. But when they opened up the Erie Canal, what that did was that connected New York to the rest of the country because it went up across New York State and connected to the Great Lakes. At the time, you had a mountain range in between essentially the rest of the United States and the East Coast that they could not get goods over it either way. So by once the Erie Canal opened, everything from the rest of this country could go up into the Great Lakes and places like Chicago, Green Bay, come down the Erie Canal, and then through New York. And then vice versa. Everything else coming from around the world would go up the Hudson and through the Erie Canal. So having New York and Brooklyn right here, the two cities really, really profited and really grew. And their war- both waterfronts exploded after that. Um, whereas New York, by the way, a lot of there wasn't really as much manufacturing. So something with, with Brooklyn and, and what would become Dumbo in these areas, the reason they really took off with manufacturing and what have you is because they had all that space, sort of almost unlimited and there were great industrial and consumer firsts in the United States that actually originated in Dumbo. Uh, who was Robert Gare and what did and what did he do? So this might actually sound funny when you say this, but you really think about it for a minute how important it is. He helped invent the cardboard box in the sense of being able to manufacture this where you could get it, fold it, and then put stuff in it to ship. Think about it today. I mean, Everything you get at your home, pretty much, if you're getting something delivered, it's coming in a cardboard box, right? Or if you 
If you're from New York and you go to Fairway, you see everything coming in and out. It's all car everything is being shipped around in cardboard boxes. So he's the one that invented that. So in in Dumbo itself, not only did he invent that, but he started to develop real estate. So he started building buildings there. So he had quite a few buildings which amazingly still exist. So you'll see some of the buildings with his name on it, and that's him. And probably the most famous landmark in the area um, would be the Clock Tower building, and that's one of his buildings. Oh, wow. Well, in Dumbo, we do see some of the earliest large-scale uh, buildings that actually were reinforced concrete. Um, when were many of these buildings that we see today, like the clock tower, you know, when were they built? It's pretty much everything would be after the American Civil War, which the period of time, which is known as the Gilded Age. So when you look at, say, the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, that's when we had our Industrial Revolution. So um, the idea of industrialization, the assembly line, mass producing products to send all over the world, that's when this was happening. So it would be the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right into the 20th century, and then Dumbo was the center, one of the centers of that. How was Dumbo, the neighborhood, that we keep calling it Dumbo, yes. but it didn't become Dumbo no. until the 70s, which right. we'll get to. Mm -hmm. um, how was the neighborhood affected by the construction of the Manhattan Bridge, which went up, uh, I think, in the first decade of the last century? Right. Um, so when you look at something, say, like the Brooklyn Bridge, I mean, that was definitely sort of connecting city to city. But when you look at bridges like the 59th Street Bridge, and then the Manhattan Bridge and eventually the Williamsburg Bridge, they were built to essentially help get people out to help develop undeveloped land. So in other words, it wasn't that it was heavily populated and they needed a bridge to get people back and forth. The idea is you build the bridge, especially the 59th Street Bridge, but also the Manhattan Bridge. If you build it out and then you start building roads out, development will follow. It was a way to help these these neighborhoods expand and grow. Because, you know, Long Island goes out, you know, 100-something miles straight out. So how did it affect the neighborhood? It, it had the effect that they were hoping it would have. Everything started to be developed and really started to expand, especially that area of, of Dumbo. I mean, sort of the other area towards Hamilton, um, the Heights and what have you, Brooklyn Heights, that was already been developed. But when that bridge opened, it really helped to expand the neighborhoods. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, we wouldn't have the neighborhood Dumbo today if it had not been for the decline of the neighborhood at one point in its history. When in the 20th century did the area decline, and what, what was the reason it, for it? This will tie in with actually a lot of the neighborhoods in the city that were in decline, which was most of them. Um, basically, after World War II, everybody wanted to have a house and a backyard and a car, so people started moving out of the city. And when that happened the city was making less money in tax revenue. So the thought was, well, we need to cut services. We'll cut the fire department, we'll cut the sanitation department, the police department. So slowly crime went up, things got dirtier, and people that were here were like, hmm, it's getting dirty and dangerous, I want to move. And it was just this spiral downward, which really started after World War II. So you're saying the 1950s and the 1960s is when it really started to go downhill. But that's mainly what it was. It was people leaving the city hmm. for the suburbs. Well, like many neighborhoods, it uh, has been rebirthed and rejuvenated. Um, today, Dumbo has very little resemblance to the decayed neighborhood that it was maybe just 40 or 50 years ago. How did the rebirth of this amazing New York neighborhood begin? What was, it, what was its genesis? Well, you know, a lot of it starts with artists and people looking for uh, cheaper space to live. And places like Manhattan, even that some of the areas that were more run down, it was still relatively expensive. <clears throat> so the this area of Brooklyn was just uh, a great place for people to go. Again, a lot of artists and creative type people that needed space. Including our second guest uh, oh, a little bit later yep, yep. on the show. Yes. So um, so it was just a great opportunity to get this great space. And, you know, a lot of these buildings were built pretty solid because they were factories or warehouses. So even though they looked real bad, and you might be able to verify that more, but the... There was something to work with because the buildings were so solid. So that's really what was starting it. Well, built like brick you-know-whats, which we won't mention sort of on the air. <laughs> um, which brings us to how the neighborhood got its present name. How did Dumbo get to be called Dumbo? So its story goes, and it's pretty. I've heard, talked to a lot of people, and they, they agree, is that it's really the people of the neighborhood because be, it was starting to become successful, and it was being... You know, it was livable, it was becoming safe and, and cleaning it up. So they really didn't want 
they weren't even using this term, I think, back then, but they, to be gentrified. You know, they didn't want a lot of other people just moving in there. So they created the name themselves to make it sort of sound unattractive. That was right? one of the few acronyms of a neighborhood where it actually wasn't the real estate community that came up with the name. Yeah, like yeah. Soho or Nolita, Nolita or Borum Hill or, or uh, <laughs> Mipa. They're trying to do the Mipa <laughs> district, right? You know, um, so yeah, that's right. It was actually the people of the neighborhood trying to purposely give it what they thought was a bad name. So mm. pe- people wouldn't want to live there. And of course, it didn't have that impact. It may have uh, delayed it for uh, a little bit, um, which brings us to someone who, uh, from a commercial standpoint, really uh, helped along the development and, and, in some sense, the transformation of of the housing stock in in Dumbo. Um, who is David Walentis, and, and and how did he develop the neighborhood? Well, um, there were several groups. Um, I think the idea was at the time, and I don't want to go too deep into it because I don't want to get anything wrong on, on that particular group, but I just think the opportunity to go into an area that was relatively um, less expensive, again, it was, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, more desirable and easier to go into a neighborhood opposed to, say, Manhattan, if you're going to Brooklyn or Queens or what have you. So they're just one of several, I think, groups that came in, families that came in, especially that came in, that took a chance to, to put their money into it to redevelop. And then that became two trees. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And of course, today the neighborhood has uh, incredible housing. I mean, I'm in the real estate industry, and and it's one of the most expensive neighborhoods, real estate wise, in Brooklyn. Um, but still does maintain some rent regulated apartments. <laughs> uh, not many, though. Um, and also, uh, I was surprised to learn that Dumbo has more tech firms based here than any other New York City neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Something like 25% of all tech firms in the city are based in Dumbo now? Yes, that's what it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's changing a little bit. There's a, it's, it's definitely growing, the tech sector in the city, which has been something that has been growing for 20 years, but yes. And that brings us to what Dumbo looks like today. Um, well, Vinegar Hill, which is right next to it, uh, looks very much as it did uh, part of it back in the 1840s. I believe that... Um, the oldest row houses that are still surviving in Brooklyn are in Vinegar Hill along Front Street and along Hudson Avenue right before the Navy Yard. Uh, and now you still have the old industrial look of Dumbo itself. You have Belgian block streets. Uh, some streets even have rail still embedded yes. in, the, in the Belgian blocks, which is mm-hmm. a really cool thing to see. It's a re- you, know, uh, you can talk about the, liking the old urban environment and even a little bit of the, uh, evidence of, of the industry that was there. And these streets still have, oh, yeah. some streets still have the rails. Um, and there's a ruins of a Civil War warehouse that uh, now has been totally renovated and repurposed called the Empire Stores. Uh, before the renovation, I remember you'd be, you even were able to go through it and smell spices and things. Mm. Um, okay. And coffee, too. Coffee, and coffee, yes, coffee was yes. one of the biggest businesses in that, in that area. Still is, by the way, a lot of coffee shops and stuff. That, right? A lot of unique coffee shops. When was Dumbo designated an historic district by the Landmarks Preservation Commission? It was actually in 2007, and it was the 90th historic district in the city. So it's relatively new that they have done that those those blocks in that area, yes, so mm-hmm. about 2007. Uh, Vinegar Hill was actually designated as a historic district 10 years before then. I was talking with our second guest earlier because the houses were much older, and in the mm-hmm. 90s I think people thought of stuff that was from the 19th century being having more historical significance. Uh, I want to give one little plug before we end our segment with with Kevin. The Brooklyn Historical Society has uh, uh, not that long ago opened up its second location. Their main uh, and their traditional uh, location is on Pierpont Street in Brooklyn Heights. They just opened uh, an annex, which actually is in the Empire Stores. Uh, That's at 55 Water Street. Uh, Kevin Draper of New York Historical Tours, thank you so much for being my guest today on Rediscovering New York. Good to have you back. And uh, you also can take advantage of Kevin and his knowledge uh, at NewYorkHistoricalTours.com. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure being here. We'll be back in a moment, and we will be having a in-depth conversation with our second guest, Tanya Rind, who is one of those artists we were talking about and also a business owner in Dumbo. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. (laughs) 
love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support for the show also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate, but there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. It airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook. The name of the page is Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Surprise, surprise. And also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. And one other note before we get to our second guest, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent in New York City where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, we have a very special guest uh, for the second part of the show. Usually we will have an artist or a neighborhood personality or a business owner, and we have all three today. Uh, Our second guest is Tanya Rind. Tanya studied feminist literature and political science at the University of California at Santa Cruz. In 1989, she moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico to pursue the arts, where she studied figurative drawing, painting, and fine art printmaking. Tanya's pursuits revolve around the production of visual and performing arts as mediums for freedom of expression, social documentation, and community consciousness. In 1993, she moved to New York City to paint and write. She interned at the Bob Blackburn Print Studio, where she learned lithography, designed sets for independent films, and was a member of the WOW Theater that produced works that explored gender and sexual identity. In 1995, Tanya began to study the arts at Hunter College, where she graduated in 1998 with a BA in writing. And should I say this? It was in your bio, Tanya, at the age of 29. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) One month later, Tanya and her business partners, Laura Taylor and Carolee Sparry, started Superfine restaurant and bar in Dumbo. Tanya has dedicated the last 20 years to learning how to build, operate, and sustain a small business in Brooklyn with a strong commitment to social, political, and artistic dialogue within her community, not to mention a commitment to art in general and also to music. Even though she's a business owner, Tanya has continued to stay true to her first love, painting. She describes herself as a figurative expressionist painter and fine art printmaker, creating from the inside out using colors as poetry and her efforts to understand people. In addition to painting, Tanya also has studied jazz for over 10 years, an endeavor that she found to be just as creatively stimulating. And she also brings her love of music to her business, which we'll also talk about. Tanya Rind, a very special welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you. Well, uh, unlike Kevin, uh, New York is not where you're from, or even your first stop along the way in your, in your life's journey. That's true. Um, I was born in Seattle. And I lived in New Mexico for five years prior to moving to New York. And I decided at age 25 to move to New York to become as engaged in the arts as possible. And that meant that I was um, primarily um, looking at painting and printmaking and writing um, and then 
many other projects came from, you know, being fully engaged here. Um, I love New York, and I'm just so proud to have been as engaged in, in my neighborhood, Dumbo, as I have. Well, please don't uh, take this quite the wrong way. You're a veritable Renaissance woman. Uh, just reading over all the things that you've done and the art exhibitions, there have to be 30 or 40 exhibitions that you have exhibited your works in. Um, where have you lived in New York before you moved to Dumbo? Was Dumbo the first place you lived? Um, no, I lived in um, on Grand Street in Little Italy the first year that I was in New York, and I was renting an amazing studio apartment um, above Palucci's uh, restaurant. You would go through the, the staircase up to the apartment, and... Um, and that was one of the places that I had my first uh, art exhibit. And I was also working, doing set design with Joe Andres and Steve Buscemi at the time. And I was working with them in Brooklyn. And they sent me to Dumbo to pick up props from a prop warehouse. And that was my first introduction to Dumbo. I was primarily in the city that first year that I lived in New York. And when I was sent over to pick up these props... Sent over sounds ominous. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because you're talking about uh, the early, you know, mid-90s. Uh, there were not very many people at that time living in, in Dumbo, uh, definitely not living there illegally. Um, and it was primarily artists that were inhabiting these larger warehouse spaces, uh, woodworkers, uh, different uh, industry in the arts, but um, not necessarily, uh, you know, there were, I was there when the first baby was born in Dumbo. There were not families living in Dumbo like you experience now. Um, and <clears throat> I came over the bridge and I was so excited because I thought this is, this is where I want to live. There's, there's no one out here. There's you got just, a bug. That yeah, was, that was it. it. I, yeah. I just, I could see the horizon, and I could um, imagine that um, uh, the expanse, the ability to see out and see uh, the great architecture of the bridges. I just fell in love with Dumbo the first time I went there, even though there was no one walking around on the street. Um, and I started to look for an uh, apartment the very next week. And when did you move into Dumbo? I moved in in 1994 Wow! wow. at 25J Street. 25J Street. And that's where you met one or both of your present business partners? Um, yes, I met Carolee Sperry, uh, who was at the time, she was at Pratt. Um, actually, she graduated from Pratt as an industrial designer. And she was also living at 25J Street. And Laura Taylor, who I knew from New Mexico, who was a chef there, had uh, flew out the following year. And her biggest uh, reason, or one of her things that she was looking for in moving to New York would be a place to park her Harley. She just said, well, make sure we can park <laughs> the Harley inside the apartment. And at that time, we did find an apartment where you could ride the motorcycle into the freight elevator, the freight elevator <laughs> and bring it up. And, and, you know, that was my biggest concern back in 1994 was, could we park the Harley inside the apartment? And sure enough, we did find an amazing um, space that ha had uh, people who had been doing um, commercial cooking out of the environment. And so we had this commercial kitchen when we first moved into 25J Street. Uh, with a garland stove in the middle of the loft. And that was really how um, Superfine was born, was in this loft. And we would start these, uh, we started these monthly supper clubs. Um, this was before the internet and the cell phone revolution that was, you know, that we now rely on so heavily. Um, and we would basically put a call out to the major art um, institutions that were happening in Dumbo, so Gail Gates, uh, Dumbo Arts Center, Smack Melon, uh, and we would say we're having the Art Supper Club, and, and you did it about once a month. Once mm -hmm. a month, yeah. Uh -huh. Fifty people would sign up, and when fifty people was the capacity, and it included basically became our our uh, business plan for Superfine was born out of these the Supper Club. So there was a art installation, a live jazz. Uh, show a 
midnight cabaret that included uh, male and female drag performers and a the food, which was always created by Laura, um, you would get all small plates of this amazing organic farm-raised food that we served pretty much our, our business plan then is how we've carried through to now. Um, and it was an amazing time because uh, so much... Uh, of the community of Dumbo at that time was looking to connect. They were looking to find each other and find who was living in the neighborhood at the time because there wasn't a local pub. There wasn't a grocery store yet. There wasn't a cafe. There wasn't, um, you know, these environments that we, we take for granted now, you know, there's a lot of, uh, different ways that you can connect, but we as a community of artists were really looking to find each other and so I, I do feel that uh, Superfine was born from that real need to um, create not just a restaurant, but like a place where people could explore their expression um, and, and stay true to uh, the music scene that was happening and the art scene that was happening in Dumbo at that time was really dynamic. Um, and so um, after our, our fifth supper club we said we we should open a restaurant we should open we should open this as supper club as as our business and so we set off to do that and um we did not start where we are now um oh, where was the first location of Superfine? well obviously in in one of your, well, your laura carolee's apartment the supper club was the first and all three partners lived at 25j um, and then and you met at the building. You all met at, at twenty. Well, I knew Street. Laura from New Mexico. Ah, okay. So and and she was a chef there and great great cook. Um, so we um, rented the kitchen at Between the Bridges Bar, which was a ninety year old bridge workers bar, and it was primarily the clientele there was the union of the bridge workers, and. It is a bar that no longer exists. It was torn down, um, and they built a building there now. But this was, um, I would love to have gotten um, Kevin's take on, at, on Between the Bridges Bar if he actually knew about it, but it was had a lot of history in Dumbo and, and of the building of the bridges. So we rented their kitchen, and it was a little bit of our claim to fame at the time. Uh, it really alerted the uh, developers, the then developers, to um, to uh, to Superfine. So, uh, just to give an example, you know, Valentis, uh, the Benedettos, uh, Charlie Cara, the the people who owned the land in Dumbo, had all come and seen what we were doing out of this little bar, and we started to engage with the uh, the real estate of Dumbo mm. with our project. <laughs> when did you move into the present location of, of Superfine, which is right under the Manhattan Bridge? Yes. Uh, um, well, we started in 2000 and we built out our raw space. Um, it was a raw, it was a uh, car parts and vacuum cleaner warehouse. And we built for the entire 2000. And we opened up, um, let's see, we opened up one month after 9-11 in 2001. Wow. And we've been in that location um, now for 20 years. In uh, full disclosure, I've actually, uh, you know, I host a series of walking tours in my real estate business, and also I've uh, uh, been involved with several organizations, and we've had, I think I've had three events at Superfine, which is a great place to have, to have, to have an event. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Tanya Rind, and we're going to talk a little bit about the vibe of Dumbo. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com Back to rediscovering New York. My guest is time. My guest on the second half of the show is Tanya Rin, who's a co-owner of Superfine, which is on Front Street in Dumbo. Tanya, why don't you tell our listeners how they can find out more about Superfine? Absolutely. Um, we are open seven days a week, and we serve food six days a week. We change our menu every single day, uh, so there's always going to be something exciting to rediscover. If you come to Superfine more than once in one week, I have many, many people who come there every single day and eat at the restaurant, which is amazing. Um, and you can find us directly on that corner, Front and Pearl. You can go to superfine.ny, and that's our website. You could go to Yelp. You could go to Facebook. Um, you, I, I prefer the in-person, so just please come find us in person. I will be there. <laughs> um, when it, one of the exciting things about Superfine is that all three owners work every single day in our restaurant, and we believe so strongly in what we do on a daily level um, with our relationship to the food and um, our relationship to our community. We're, we feel uh, very invested in... Um, that old-fashioned way of, of, of really interacting with your staff and interacting with um, the public. Um, I find that that's one of the exciting parts of my life is that I'm still excited to go to work every day and, and I'm still proud of what we do every day in that business. Do you know if most of your customers live or work in Dumbo? Uh. I, I feel that um, most of the customers that come to Superfine have a long time, a uh, long relationship with us. Um, and, you know, during the daytime, uh, we had mentioned the tech companies, but there is this tremendous um, industry and business that's happening in Dumbo right now. Um, so there's definitely that type of the crowd, but in the evening, it's more of the people who ha live and, and work in, you know, live in Dumbo. Mm. Um, on the weekends, we do a, um, I consider it a famous bluegrass green chili brunch because it's the only place in New York that flies green chili in from New Mexico. And I didn't tell you earlier, I, lo uh, I love bluegrass. Uh, in fact, uh, do you know the band, the old Blue Harvest? Oh, yes. Yes, and I have the uh, this CD is right under the Manhattan Bridge, a picture of it. Right. Excellent. Yes. I miss Clarence and his music. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Excellent. Yes, I know Clarence. Uh, well, uh, Bluegrass, um, what ha we've had this long standing. Um, it's been about, I want to say, 16, 17 years that we've presented Bluegrass music every single Sunday and primarily uh, Brooklyn-based uh, bluegrass bands, which there's a tremendous scene happening in New York and in Brooklyn. Um, one of the exciting uh, things that's happened in my life has been uh, collaborating with Jan Bell. She's the director and producer of the Brooklyn Americana Music Festival, which is in its fourth year. And we've collaborated for over 20 years now, presenting uh, music together. And um, she currently curates the bluegrass at Superfine, as well as a jazz dinner night that happens on Sundays. And I feel very lucky to work with someone um, like her who has all of this connectivity that's happening in the music scene and in current day in New York. Um, and I have the opportunity to keep my life uh, very 
awake because of the live music. It, it has kept me very engaged. Well, that's great. I'm a big fan of live music and uh, used to go to uh, Sheriff Bob's uh, 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 jam when it was weekly. And now, you know, don't get to go as often as I like. Also, there's a great bluegrass jam at Mona's on Avenue B on Monday nights. But OK, uh, now that you've mentioned <clears throat> the sheriff. So the sheriff is the person who started up the bluegrass at Superfine and was also a big uh, person in our lives who brought live music to Superfine. And actually, uh, I talked to the sheriff, that's uh, Sheriff Uncle Bob, Bob Zeidenberg, about being on this show when I do The Central Village. He's, uh, I'm going to be really keen. He just turned 80, by the way. He had a big birthday celebration at Zinc Bar, which used to be the Bagot Inn. Um, what do you love? You've seen Dumbo change. You've lived there for 25 years. You've had your businesses there for almost as long. You've been creating art. You've been painting. You still paint oils when you, in your own home, which is really something, your studio and home, painting oils, not just watercolor or gouache, but oils. That's really religious. Um, what do you love about Dumbo now? The first um, things that brought me to Dumbo, which was kind of the ability to have a horizon, still rings true to me. The relationship to being on the river and being able to see the movement of the river has definitely enriched my life. Um, I kind of can't think of living anywhere else because of my relationship with the river. Um, I think that's one of the most exciting parts of Dumbo, uh, especially as they've expanded the Brooklyn Bridge Park and they're putting so much um, awareness into the programming that's happening in the park. I'm, I mean, I feel very, very lucky to be right at that, that waterfront. <laughs> so... What else do you feel makes the neighborhood unique for you as someone who lives and also works there? Well, um, I mean, I have to say that uh, St. Anne's Warehouse is a unique part of the neighborhood. And um, what they do with the theater in the neighborhood is tremendous. Um, when we first opened in 2001, which was just a month after 9-11, uh, St. Anne's moved to Dumbo from uh, the Heights, and I put a lot of stock into, uh, and still to this day believe that part of our success was was because St. Anne's opened, and it was an opportunity when when you know we were one of the first restaurants to open in Dumbo, uh, besides the River Cafe, Pedro's, Front Street Pizza guys. We were one of the first you know places that you could you could go to and well the river cafe and the pizza place they're by they're on old fulton street by the bridge you, you know you yes. have to venture into into like yes. dumbo to get to where you are and when saint mm -hmm. anne's opened you know they opened with the wooster group they opened with uh, primarily a manhattan-based uh clientele and 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 the people who are coming down from the heights and we partnered up with them and said, you know, you bring bring the people, the pre-theater uh, people to Superfine. And that relationship really, especially those first several years when Dumbo was not yet developed, um, we took a lot of risks at that time, you know, to, to really create the energy that we did to bring people in to our, our business. Um, you know, I still look back on St. Anne's and I, I feel very um, proud to have been a part of, of their history of what they've brought on a cultural level to the neighborhood. Tanya, is there anything that surprises you about Dumbo? I f still feel surprised every day when I see the mass of people just flowing down J Street. And I, I just, oh my God, look at all these people. You know, because I just can't believe how what it feels to me overpopulated Dumbo is becoming um, and yet it holds it it holds all the people well it's but when I turn that corner and I look up J Street as the people are pouring from the subway down I still feel surprised <laughs> mm. so well, some, some ways that come to mind to describe you and your history there, either as a, a fairy godparent or a little bit of a, a, a wizard, a wizardress. I don't know if wizardress is a name. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's more like you you and your partners have been muses in, in Dumbo. Um, if you had a crystal ball to look into the future of the neighborhood, seeing how it's changed, 
do you have a sense about how it's going to change more, uh, what the future is? I look into the crystal ball all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really don't know if it's going to peak at some point. You know, I feel like we're almost at a peaking point, but it is getting, you know, there's now so many more tourists that are coming. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to get to a place where, um, you know, even more cultural things are arriving, you know, into the neighborhood that's, I mean, that would be my wish. Wow. Okay. Well, we've just had a fascinating conversation with Tanya Rind, one of the co-owners of Superfine Bar and Restaurant. Tanya's also an artist and a muse for Dumbo. Tanya, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jeff. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting in Dumbo or any other part of the city, well, most parts anyway, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. And at 9 p.m., Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thanks so much for listening on our journey today. We look forward to seeing you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.